The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode of Essential Conversations is supported by Rob Bell and his profound and deeply personal new audiobook, Everything is Spiritual. Join Bell as he explores powerful insights into understanding your true purpose and place in the world. Order your copy wherever audiobooks are sold. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Jacqueline Suskin, is a poet and the author of seven books, including a three-volume series called The Edge of the Continent, Help in the Dark Season, and her newest book, Every Day is a Poem. Her work has been featured in the New York Times Tea Magazine, LA Times, The Atlantic, and other august publications, uh, to which we are now taking her to another level because she will be featured in the November-December issue of Spirituality Magazine and appear on the cover of the November-December issue of Spirituality Magazine. Take that, LA Times. (laughs) (laughs) Jacqueline Suskin, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you for having me. Well, it is really my pleasure, and I know everyone's going to love this conversation because if they're not yet familiar with your work, they will be when they read the magazine, and they're going to love it as much as I do. So let me start out with something. Before we get into the book, let me ask a more generic question. So in 1971, I was living on a, or spending time on a kibbutz in Israel that was run by this mystic rabbi, and it was for would-be Kabbalists. And he introduced me to the community as their resident poet. And I had no idea what he was talking about because <laughs> I, I didn't write poetry. And then decades later, one of my publishers called me and asked if I would submit a poetry manuscript for their poetry imprint. And I told them what I told that rabbi, I'm not a poet. I didn't write poetry. And they said to me, basically what the rabbi said to me in the 70s, they said, you write dozens and dozens and dozens of prayers. And they said, that's poetry enough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they ultimately (laughs) published a collection of my liturgical writings, I would call them, rather than poetry. So while I'm honored and humbled by the title poet, I don't own it. But you do. And you are a poet. So tell us what it is for you to be a poet and why poetry matters. 
I love that. I I would follow all of that to say that I connect deeply with the concept of poetry as prayer and also just upholding how important it is to feel the the poet alive in oneself, even if we don't identify as poets. I mean, I think I started identifying as a poet when I was very young because it was just a natural inclination for me to experience the world and respond with these little, small, condensed, what I maybe would have thought of as a child as short stories or something like that. But as I grew up, I realized, oh no, I was writing poetry. And I think that for me, the path of being a poet in the world and accepting the fact that that's indeed what I am was just sort of the, I kept having this ongoing interaction with poetry and being called a poet as you were and having people be excited about what I was writing. And so at some point I just, I just accepted it. I must be a poet. And I went to school for poetry and got a degree in poetry, but still I never really thought of it beyond a natural inclination and the way I see the world. And then once I got my degree, I chose not to follow the regular path of uh, the institution of poetry, which is that you just continue onward, get your PhD and you know you, you teach so that you can be published by your university. I wanted to experience the world and be a poet in the world and have a lot of experience to write about. And so I ended up going on this great journey uh, that has just led me to try and create poetry that is accessible for everyone. Um, to try to make work that is not esoteric and strange, but that is, you know, a, a form of reverence and praise and also just something that kind of anyone can uh, find the humanity in. So I think that's where the poetry matters question comes from in, in my practice is, you know, I think it matters to uh, offer people up this reflection and this lens on the world. I get the sense sometimes that poetry, because poetry is more concise than prose. You're using fewer words. You're trying to get a lot of emotion and meaning packed into a smaller line. And I think, I don't know if it's unique to our time because poetry is, you know, is prior to prose, but um, it's really necessary now mm -hmm. because we don't have the attention span and we, we need to be struck by the power of the language if we're going to get the meaning the words convey. Yeah, think? I think that's, that's very true. And the fact that poetry is having a huge renaissance and it's, you know, the sales are higher than they've been in ages and people are really turning to poetry. I think it just, um, it leans towards what you just said is that this, this lack of attention span and also at the same time, this desire to get to the depth of everything much more quickly to know what, what is the real feeling here? I want to think beyond just this surface level comment perhaps and like get to it as soon as I can. What's the heart of the matter? I don't have time to wait around or read a whole novel to find out. Um, so there, there's a, a rushed sense of uh, exploration or something like that in, in this new rise of poetry as an accessible tool for people. And I mean, I, I also blame the internet for that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I get what you're saying from the point of view of the reader, but from the point of view of the poet herself, my guess is you can BS a lot in an essay. You can BS even more 
in a book, Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of room for BSing in a poem. Is that fair? That that is absolutely fair. Yeah, you don't waste any words. Nothing should be wasted. Each word is carefully chosen, almost painstakingly so. I'll edit a poem that I'm working on for a book for years sometimes before I feel like it's done. And I think that that fine tuning and that attention to each word as this specific you know, treasure that makes up this one woven kind of glimpse of some micro macro combination is, is what's so special about it. You know, I don't know if it's because I knew we were going to be doing this tonight but I, I, I wake up very early. I, I do my whole meditation thing in the morning. But I woke up this morning trying to translate the Shema, Hero Israel, the traditional translation. But Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a terrible translation, but that's the standard English. In Hebrew, it's a haiku. Three lines, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. It's a perfect haiku. And I was working. I just woke up dreaming how to, you know, do this and to put the English in haiku form, but changing the, you know, the, the, the you know, getting rid of the traditional English and, and going for a haiku form, trying to really make it as concise and as powerful a statement as possible. And then I, I was reading about you and I guess you call it the poetry store. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That was something you still do that or is yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. Poem store still happens. It's, poem this, store. it's poem this project store. that has just really taken on a life of its own. And I, you know, I can't believe that I've written however many poems I have, like over 40,000 poems for people on the spot and trying to exactly as you just put condense some subject matter that they tell me as a, a customer or a patron um, and then writing a poem on my typewriter for them to sort of translate what it is that they're feeling or thinking or what it is they feel they need a poem about in that moment. Yeah, it's fascinating. My son, who's now in his uh, 40s, early 40s, uh, he went the other route that you, you, the road more often taken, I guess, and he's getting his PhD in English and he uh, is a poet and he had he was the poetry guy in Harvard Square in the early two thousands, mm-hmm. where people he had set up a table and a type. I know he didn't use a typewriter; he hand wrote these things, and people would stop and they'd tell him what they were, you know, what the issue was or what the event was, and he would write a poem and they would pay him or not, you know, see what <clears throat> what happened. But that's really you have to be really present to the person to do that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and that that's another skill that I think is not, maybe not unique to poets, but, but um, essential to the kind of poetry that we're talking about. Yeah. I don't actually think it's unique to poets. I think it's kind of rare for any writer to have that element play into their work because I always would say that the two things that I'm most inclined towards, or that I maybe my, are my largest talents are writing, but also connecting deeply with people. And I've been that way also since I was little, just able to kind of sit down with someone and get right to the heart of the matter. And, you know, that is, that combination is what made that practice um, so potent. But I think about other writers throughout history. And, you know, I also have that hermit sort of streak in me where I I go and have great stints of solitude in order to create work. So I, I like that I can kind of carry both. Yeah, a lot of writers I know are, if you say, well, how are you dealing with the isolation of COVID? They go, 
Oh man, it's the best. You love it. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous, but it's true. Now, acknowledging all the pain and suffering that it's causing. Oh, and then we're like, Those, we love to be alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let, let's move into your new book, Every Day is a Poem. This isn't a poetry collection as much as it is an invitation to write poetry as a way of dealing with what you call, uh, there's a quote, the heaviness of everyday living when we are surrounded by uncertainty, distrust, and destruction, close quote. And doing so in such a way that that helps us, uh, and this is another way, this is the way you put it, helps us sift through the chaos and enjoy being alive. I mean, I love that. I mean, you have me at chaos because <laughs> I think everything is chaos. The Bible tells us that the universe is chaos. That's the beginning. Yeah. Uh, how does that work? How does, um, you know, writing poetry help you or help us sift through the chaos and enjoy being alive? Well, there's many ways I think that it helps, but I actually, I'll just use your example of the pandemic and being in quarantine and having to you know, I'm, I'm an immensely empathic person and I feel that this whole time has been only manageable for me because I've been able to meet it with my poetic mindfulness instead of, you know, whatever other anxiety and depression and all of the suffering and all of the feelings. Um, my, my poetry is the thing that helps me process. And so even if just simply as a tool to process the chaotic world that we live in, I think there's just so much power in that. And that's not about sharing the work or writing something for anyone else, even not even considering an audience. It's just the act of processing with that lens on that I think is so beautiful and just really works. And I always think that if there's any practice that works really well for me, it's worth offering up to other humans because I'm just a human. So if it works for me, then it wor could work for many others. Let's take a moment to thank today's sponsor, Rob Bell. Rob has released a profound and deeply personal new audiobook, Everything is Spiritual. Join Rob as he explores powerful insights into understanding your true purpose and place in the world. Order your copy wherever audiobooks are sold. You're familiar with Thich Nhat Hanh? Yes. And his concept of the poet's mind? I'm not familiar yeah. with that. <laughs> so I don't remember which book it's in, but he talks about the poet's mind and the way he does it, I, I can't do it in justice, but... He says, if you look at a blank piece of paper with a poet's mind, you see the sun in the paper, you see the tree in the paper. And, and he goes through this whole thing, you know, because you can't have a tree without the sun, you can't have the, the tree without the planet and without water and all, all the things. And eventually you see the entire universe in the blank sheet of paper because the poet's mind is the mind that sees everything as interconnected. Mm -hmm. And if you are, as you just said, empathic, and you feel the suffering of the world. Everything. But, yeah, but you can do it in a way, and this is, I'm just rephrasing what you just said. You can do it in a way where you transform it into something that is meaningful and is somehow comforting, even if it doesn't actually remove the suffering. Oh, exactly. And that this this new book of mine is exactly that it's a book full of tools that would help someone do that. And I just think that's so perfect. I love that I didn't know 
about that because it's kind of like this affirmation for me in this moment of, yeah, that's the mindset that I'm talking about. And I, you know, I had folks read the book and friends and different artists and say, oh, we never knew you could teach such a thing. We didn't know that this could be taught because I think we think of a poetic mindset as something that, oh, just this gifted person. And and maybe it is that in a certain way, but I, I challenged myself uh, to write it all down because I thought, well, if I can kind of break down all of the process that I've been, you know, that I've ingrained in myself over the years or noticed in myself, then I could teach that. And even if someone just adopts one of these practices, they could have that potential of looking at that piece of paper and making some great connection, like I said earlier, of like the micro to the macro and how it's all connected. And then that feeling maybe just allows them to surface from the suffering for a moment and feel the other side of the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. You know, know, as I started to read uh, Every Day is a Poem, I I was transfixed, right? I mean, early on in the book, um, by these, the first three paragraphs, I, you know what? I don't remember what chapter number it is. It's, I know it's on page 12. You, you have a copy of the book there. I'd love for you to read those first three paragraphs of that chapter, and then we can unpack them a little bit. Of course. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When I zoom out on my life, I'm in awe of everything. It isn't just the tiny details that wow me. It's the way that they somehow fit into the giant fold of the universe. This fitting together, this wonder of small and large, this is the heart of poetry, and you can exercise it anywhere, anytime. I fell in love with the word awe about eight years ago. I'm not sure how it came to me, but suddenly I found myself with three letters strung together that perfectly describe my most familiar state of being. The common dictionary definition of awe is a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder. It's that reverential respect that I'm so often filled with when I take in our world. I like that fear is in there as well, not because I walk around afraid of the majesty that is life, but because it hints at the presence of death woven into the fabric of our impermanent existence. Our wonder is attached to the fleeting nature of our reality. You know, it sounds like I'm I'm just a fanboy, but... <laughs> It, that that is so on point. I, I love those paragraphs. I love those words. And hearing you read it gives it even more power. Uh, we were both Jewish, and I had asked you before we came on the air whether you were aware of the fact that in Hebrew, 
the word for fear and the word for awe are the same word, yira. Mm-hmm. And that when people read in the Bible, oh, the fear of the God, of the fear of the Lord, or fear of God, it just sounds like you're supposed to be scared of God because mm-hmm. God's going to do something bad to you if you do something that God doesn't like. But the actual meaning is this blending of awe and fear. And your understanding of fear, linking it to impermanence, mortality, heightens the very sense of awe, that there's more awe because things are mortal, Mm -hmm. that there's more wonder when we know that uh, things are, are transient. And that kind of stance in the world I want to say, is the poet's stance. Mm, What do you think? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And that that leans into the reverential respect part, but also the sense of just the poet being tuned into all of the detail and all of the experience and understanding that it could all be gone at any moment. So why not be in awe and praise it and celebrate it? Even if it's tangled up with a bunch of pain and suffering and loss, it's still amazing, it's even more amazing because we know we don't get to keep all of it and that everything that comes our way is actually this great offering that we can rejoice in. And I think that's, that is, that is such a consistent thread throughout poetry. And even if it's the darkest, saddest work, it's still in awe. It's still paying attention. It's still present. It's, uh, it's turning towards life, even if you're seeing death in it. Have you found your work getting darker? in the pandemic? Oh, I've been facing all of these dark, dark concepts. Yeah. I think it's really built into me to hold on to hope and hopelessness all at once. I've been uh, pretty dedicated to that practice for a long time, never to lean just into hope or just into hopelessness, but practice kind of holding both. And I do that in my work a lot. You know, know, the Chinese, uh, the Taoists have a phrase, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of everyday living. Mm. And again, just use the word stance. Your stance in the world is to be open to all of them and not flee from the, the, the sorrows and not run after the joys, but simply to be open to all of them. And that's what I think you're talking about. And that's, that's how I, I, I hear your work when I read it. And that's also what I think you're inviting people to do in Every Day as a Poem when, you're, when, when the reader of the book reads it as a prompt. Okay, now it's your turn. You, you try this, mm-hmm. you know, saying to the reader. One of the things you say to us in the book is, and this is a, just a sentence, it's a quote from you. We are born to ask why. We are here to make up our own answers. So, I mean, I agree with you, but how audacious <laughs> of you to say what, or really to, to admit what so few of us dare even to entertain, that the answers to life's questions, the many systems of meaning upon which people rely, like the philosophical, religious, spiritual, political, whatever, they're all made up. Mm-hmm. Knowing that all our answers are made up, it seems to me that it frees us to make them up better. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think your work invites us to do. Yeah, I think that's probably a main thesis that I've carried, even in my own life personally. Just remembering that is so freeing. And it's also, 
it, it just, it reminds me of, you know, concepts of evolution and growth and progress. And you said a word a, a minute ago about being open and that word open and openness is I, at the center piece of what I'm trying to do with my work is just imagining people being more open to even what we're talking about, the concept of, you know, accepting and understanding what it is to create meaning and what kind of openness it requires to actually believe that or see it. And then on top of that, to just start doing it and start making it better, as you said. And I think, you know, we always need that. And the human story requires us to create a better way. And to do that, you have to be open to the concept that you indeed are making it up. So why do you think that as soon as we make it up, we pretend we didn't make it up. <laughs> you know, it's like you wrote a poem and then you put it aside and you came back the next day and you picked it up and you said, oh, where did this come from? It's revelation. Mm. You know, it's like we, we, we have this deliberate amnesia that, that, that allows us a, a greater sense of comfort if we pretend we didn't make it up. But all of our systems are made up. To me, that's the comfort. Then we can go, oh, really? I've been scared to death of this idea that I got when I was six years old. Now I realize someone made it up. I don't have to deal with it. Mm. It's not my problem. Why do you think it is that people are so afraid of that truth? Oh, my gosh. That just made me think of so many different things. Uh, let's see if, which where I should start. I mean, part of it is the, the feeling of that disbelief. I think part of that comes from what are we who like, what is this we we're discussing who makes it up? And when I think of that, I think of consciousness or I think of the divine or, you know, the, the great mystery or whatever you want to call it, God, this otherness that we kind of want to put our stories on. And even for myself, like when I when I write work for people in public, I don't even know what's happening to me. I feel like I'm in a trance and some other thing is speaking through me most of the time. I don't know what I'm writing until I read it to the person. I have no idea what the poem says. And even when I wrote this book, Every Day is a Poem, it flew through me as if, oh, here's this thing that is passing through my body and I'm open to that. So I'm just letting it become whatever it needs to become. And so there's this fine line there where I could say, well, that wasn't me. And I, I kind of like to say that because it takes the ego out of it. And that, that, that feels right. inspiring. And I think that's one level of it. But then there's this other level of it that is like a lack of responsibility. And that's like a different direction. It's this lack of responsibility for the meaning that we make up the systems that we create. And then later we don't want to you know, take responsibility perhaps because it went wrong or, you know, something like that. Yeah. You know, when, when, if someone asks me, how do I write all the books that I've written? You know, I always say, and it's not a conceit, it's, it's actually true. And as you just articulated, I, say, I don't write them. Mm -hmm. I type them. Somehow these words come into my head and I put them down, you know, I, I type them into the computer as fast as I can. I'm not so much a writer as I am a rewriter because mm -hmm. <laughs> I go back and I say, okay, I get this rough stuff. Now let me see if I can, if I can make sense out of it. There is that kind of mystic flow to it all that, uh, you know, it's, um, I guess like being in the zone in baseball or, you know, different sports metaphors, but. 
there's a zone for for writers and and for poets. L- let me, because we're running, on, we're coming up against the end of the the time allotted, and. I mentioned a little bit ago that Every Day is a Poem is an invitation to the reader to become a writer. And one section of the book is entitled How to Make a Poem Out of Awe. So can you give us, obviously not the entire chapter, but can you give us some, some, how do we start? What's the one thing people might be able to do who are listening going, well, that's good for her, but I'm not a poet. What could they do just to maybe shake that thought up a little bit. Yeah, I I love there's a there's a whole the whole way the book is set up is to sort of just guide you through like the most simple beginnings of these things so that you don't feel the pressure of it and you give yourself permission to see what that looks like on the page or even just in in your mind. And so I think, you know, I just tell the reader and I tell everyone in my life, you know, focus on something that inspires you in your line of sight you know, wherever you are, find one thing, even if it's a common everyday object or something that catches your eye, you know, a dragonfly on the window or some little statue on your desk that your grandmother gave you or something really simple and let, let it be enough. Like let it be your subject matter, even if it is commonplace. And uh, that then you just let yourself write about that thing, no matter what it is, you write about where it came from. It's loose and, you know, it's, it's not a thing that you're editing or thinking about. It's just this rough ramble of, you know, being interested. And uh, that I think from there is a great place to dig a poem out of. Okay. Nice place to start. Last thing. Just to bring this to a close, I would love for you to read a poem from the new book. Your choice, whichever one you wish to, to close with. Okay, I think I'll close with this poem that's called Future. I can't see my future clearly. It's a wash of color and light, maybe a glimpse of a house with wood floors, the death of a parent, a dog, a cat, a love, but nothing certain. I like its fog. Inevitably, something will happen. Pieces will fall into place if I keep breathing. And I'll eat, I'll work, I'll learn and know and forget. There'll be another bowl full of berries, a hot cup of tea, additional travel and sorrow. There'll be a clean pair of pants, the sun's good glow, a cut in blood, a hole to dig, a bath to take, a mistake to mend. What lies ahead is a promise standing in shadow one second pasted to the next. I don't need to call it by name. A riddle ensues, a song of guessing, a vow of risk. The road becomes itself, single stone after single stone, made of limitless possibility, endless awe. Wow. Perfect way to bring this to a close. Our guest today, Jacqueline Suskin, is a poet and author of seven books. Most recently, Every Day is a Poem. She's featured in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about her work at JacquelineSuskin.com. Jacqueline, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. 
You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings, and on my new podcast, Conversations on the Egg. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. This episode of Essential Conversations is supported by Rob Bell and his profound and deeply personal new audiobook, Everything is Spiritual. Join Bell as he explores powerful insights into understanding your true purpose and place in the world. Order your copy wherever audiobooks are sold. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury-Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.